0: I was told I was supposed to introduce myself. How do you do that uh, quickly? But family I practiced doc. Uh, my wife and our three children spent 11 years in Kenya at Tinwick Hospital, where I uh, was involved in taking a small bush hospital and turning it into a tertiary care center, helping to start a nursing school and a large community health and development program and build a hydroelectric plant and start a chaplaincy school and double the size of the hospital and All those kind of things you do on the mission field as well as seeing a lot of patients. From there I went to Samaritan's Purse and worked with mission hospitals around the world and started their medical relief work, uh, taking relief teams into Somalia during Black Hawk Down and during into, uh, Sudan and, uh, Rwanda during the massacres and what I call my cowboy days. And I've been at CMDA since 1994. Have you ever been in a class like I have on the first day of class, the teacher turns to you and say, take out a piece of paper, put your name at the top, and they give you a test in the first class? I had a professor like that. Nobody wanted to take them. Well, today we're going to reverse that because you get to ask me the questions. In fact, I'm taking the test and giving you the answers. And, well, I'm not going to go around the room and ask you at the beginning at least uh, the questions, but these are the ten most common questions uh, I and many other missionaries here when people are interested in missions and trying to check it out. And uh, since I've been in, involved in missions for so many years, I get a lot of these questions. CMDA, if you're not know about that organization, is the largest Christian professional organization for healthcare professionals. And we work with about 30,000 uh, students and physicians and dentists and other healthcare personnel around the country. And we work on 266 medical and dental school campuses and some undergraduate schools. So I get a lot of questions. So let's dig into this and uh, help maybe ask, answer some of the questions that you have. First of all, how do you know you're called? This is really probably the most common question. I mean, what does that mean? You hear missionaries saying it all the time. I was called. I was called. Well, first of all, you need to realize there's the general call. That's the call God gives to each one of us, and it's for a number of things. First of all, to have a personal relationship with him uh, through accepting him as our Savior. For by grace are you saved through grace, and that's not of yourself, it's the gift of God. Uh, There's call to lordship. This is an area where many people get hung up and never make it to the mission field. Is God really in charge of your life? Are you calling the shots, or is he calling the shots? Have you surrendered your life to him? Missionary life is not easy, it's not always glamorous, it's challenging, and you have to have a sense that God has called me and I have surrendered myself to him. Then there's the whole idea of discipleship. We're taught and told we should be his disciples, growing in righteousness and faith There's the call to witness, go into all the world and preach the gospel. God gave that to every Christian. It's not just to foreign missionaries or domestic missionaries. God told all of us to share our faith with others and to be a witness. And all these general calls come from what? They come from Scripture. God's very clear in what He says. And I could give you Scripture verse after Scripture verse to to illustrate these. But there also is what we call the specific call, the specific call. And that call comes primarily through the Holy Spirit, and uh, He's speaking directly to you. This is God's specific will for you and your life. God created each one of us for a purpose, not just to take up space and occupy time and enjoy life. He called us for a specific purpose, created you for a specific purpose, And that can vary widely. All of us are to be his witness wherever that purpose is. But we're talking today about missions, missions into difficult areas, whether you're heading into Africa or Afghanistan or God calls you to work in inner city Memphis like my daughter and son-in-law do and uh, work and live in the hood with the gunshots going off and the drugs being dealt and all those issues going on that we have in our country. The mission field is just not just around the world. And that call, that specific call, has a profound impact on your life. It's life-changing. It goes beyond the general guidance. God is saying something to you. And uh, I think he does that because I think certain vocations need a specific call, uh, more than the general call, a sense that God has called me to do this, designed me to do this, made me to do this, and is asking me to carry it out. And, um, and that's a challenge because often you're swimming upstream against cultural currents, against the currents of your friends uh, who may be Christian but don't have that same sense. I remember when I finished my residency as chief resident in my family practice residency and got recruited to stay as faculty, and a lot of my friends, both Christian and non-Christian, said, I can't understand why you're doing that. And, you know, it's not going to be safe. It can be tough on your kids, all those issues. And I had to get back to my call. How do you know that? Well, sometimes it can be dramatic. It's got half of this weekend. One of the speakers could be giving a challenge, sharing a scripture, telling a story, and you sense God moving in you. It could be a song that you're listening to in a quiet time. It could be reading Scripture. It could be a mission trip that you take. In fact, I encourage people to do that because God often uses taking you out of your culture, putting you overseas with other people to have His Holy Spirit speak to you. He gets your attention. You're focused. You're not... Um, distracted by the normal things of life. And that's why short-term mission trips can be, or rotation overseas, can be so life-changing. And sometimes it's slower than that, slower than that. I I know that was the case for me. Um, I was a senior in high school. My dad had taken me on a mission trip to Cape Haitian, Haiti, in 1965 as a freshman in high school. Now, this is back in the days when none of my friends had been on an airplane, much less been out of the country, and my dad was very early into the short-term mission movement. He was an evangelist. And he called me up my freshman year of high school. I was in a boarding school and said, how would you like your graduation present? I thought it was a little bit early. I still had three years to go. He said, I want to take you to Haiti with me. And it was, it was a wonderful experience. But it was then, it was in my senior year of high school when I was just trying to decide what I'm going to major in, what skills has God given me, what is he calling me to, I began to pray, and it was two or three months. It wasn't a blinding light, it wasn't a voice, it wasn't a scripture that came off the page. It was a growing realization that God could use the skills and love he had given me for science to meet the needs I had seen in Haiti, and perhaps, maybe, he was leading me into medical missions. And that's how God uh, called me. Uh, It's being on call all the Time. don't know what happened there. Maybe I do. There we go. Uh, it's being on call. What do I mean by that? If you're a physician or a nurse or whatever, you know what being on call means. But it's being, being available. Lord, I'm listening. I want to do what you're asking me to do. God may have not spoken to you yet, but each of us should be on call to what he wants us to do with our lives. And so I think that, that readiness part of it is is so important that we're sensitive to the need, we're exposing ourselves to it, we're asking ourselves. In fact, often when I think about this, it's like you were seeing ten people coming down the aisle here and they're carrying this enormous log and nine people are on one end and one end has only one person on it. Which end should you grab? Well, obviously the one that only has one person to help bear that load. When you look at the needs of the world and the opportunities of the world... It's the same thing as you look at missions. The needs are greater there, where people may have never heard, never had a church, whereas here you can find a church in almost every corner. So there's that as well. I'll give you some cautions. You don't want to overemphasize the call. It's important that I've seen people that have used the fact that I haven't had God write this on the wall yet and give me a diary of my life as the reason they don't respond They may have felt that urging, but they want something so clear, so specific, so dramatic. That's what they're looking for for their call. God doesn't often do it like he did with the Apostle Paul. Um, And then you need to move forward and search. Have you ever tried to steer a parked car? Try one with automatic transmission and automatic steering and you don't turn it on. And try to steer it, you can barely move the wheel. How does God move us? Too often we act like parked cars. We're just sitting here saying, okay, Lord, just tell me when and where and I'll go. But what God is saying is start the motor and begin moving and I can guide you. Start knocking on those doors, looking for those opportunities, trying to sense. Go to mission meetings like you are this weekend. Go overseas, meet missionaries, read biographies, and let God steer you as you do that. And then act on the light that you have. And as you do that, God will give you a clearness of call. Where should I serve? It's a very common question. I mean, how do I know? I, I sense God may want me to go somewhere, uh, you know, maybe domestically, maybe overseas, but where? I can tell you, I can't tell you where, but I can tell you where the greatest needs are. The greatest needs are in that 1040 window that you see right up here, where over. 7 million people around the world, and 820 million of them are evangelicals. They know Christ. There's 2.84 billion people who are unreached. They've never heard the gospel. There's 6,900 and some people groups that have never heard the gospel, people that have a common language and culture. And most of those are in that 1040 window right there. In those countries that are Muslim, that are Hindu, that are Islam... And uh, how many of the missionaries are there? You have any idea? 8%. 8% of the people, uh, missionaries, are in the area which has the greatest need. And they're not easy areas. Um, and only, if you look at all the missions in the United States, everybody involved in missions, 98% of them are supporting missions. Financially, prayers, mobilizers, pastors. 0.5%, one out of 200 are in servicers, and 1.5% are missionaries. And the greatest need is in this area. This is where we, you know, what's the Bible say? It says when everyone has heard the gospel, we've accomplished the Great Commission. I don't mean everybody's accepted it, but every people group has heard it. And what happens? That's when Christ returns. The Bible says that very clearly. And uh, we have a job to do. Um last year alone, 120 million people were presented with the gospel for the first time. So people are busy about this. It may be through radio. It may be through a missionary that's there. Uh, but most of the unreached people live in this area. Two-thirds of the world's population is there. And uh, eight out of the ten poorest people live in that 1040 window. So the needs are enormous. And... Uh, I think the most sobering thing is every day 5,000 of those people die without hearing the gospel. 26 million a year. Wow. So we've got something to do. Well, let's get practical with it. How how do we go about it? And we've touched on some of those things already. Reading. There's great books, and you'll find some of them here in the bookstores that are over in the areas. Great book that... Uh, on being a missionary, Um, missionary books that are written by people that have spent their whole lives overseas that will inspire you and give you insights and encourage you to look for those. Take the opportunity to walk up to some of the missionaries here, most of them over around the the exhibits. Engage them in conversation. Ask them questions. You know, one of the things that happens in those situations, kind of like a medical student on their first rotation, they're afraid to ask a question because they don't want to look stupid, right? And sometimes in missions you feel that way. Guess what? If you're an attending and you have a new medical student come in, you already know they're stupid. Right? So the people over there don't expect you to know what they know about missions and they're eager to help you. And ask any question. What's it like raising your family overseas? What, how's it been for your kids? What What's the most ch- biggest challenge you had? What was the biggest blessing? Just broad questions to give them an opportunity to share their life and put it into your mind. And you... Oftentimes, building those relationships will make a huge difference. When I was a junior in college, I went and spent about eight weeks in Kenya at my dad's encouragement. I knew I was going to be a missionary. I'd never been any place but Haiti. And a missionary doctor there threw two of his kids out of their bedroom. They slept on the couch for the eight weeks. They gave me their bedroom, and I followed him around like a puppy. And as I did that, I asked him questions, he asked me questions, and it changed my life. When I left that summer, I knew where I was going back, and it was to work with him. And it was there at Tenwick where I went. So look to develop those relationships, not only for this conference, but for the opportunity to perhaps go work with some of the missionaries that you meet. Uh, Attend mission conferences. This is a great one. And a lot of people that are moving down that trail to missions come here every year. Why? To get their batteries recharged. I call it throwing fuel on the fire. Some of you, we have a fire pit out in front of our house, and if I start a fire there and walk off and leave it, what happens? It burns out. Come back, and get the thing started again. I have to start all over. Same thing can happen in missions, and it's this opportunity of attending mission conferences, staying in contact, visiting the field, going on a short-term medical mission trip, which makes a huge difference in, in helping you figure out where God wants you to go. And he can use that experience uh, to speak into your life and into your heart. Um, there's a lot of opportunities. Uh, CMDA does global health outreach, which we love having students on with uh, and residents, people that uh, are uh, graduates that are heading these up. You work alongside. You don't have to have any training yet. There's plenty of places where you can volunteer and get that experience. World Medical Missions, for those of you who already have your degrees, is a great opportunity. I used to head that. That's the medical arm of Samaritan's Purse and uh, to do time overseas and rotations overseas. If you're a medical or dental student or nurse or whatever, you can go on to the cmda.org website, cmda.org, and there's a handbook that has over a 100 hospitals around the world. will accept you during your training to come over and do rotations. It gives you all the stuff you need to know about how to contact and how much it costs and what you'll be doing and all the rest of it. And then most importantly, You need to examine your skills and your needs and your interests. God designed you, designed you for a purpose. And, uh, He has a place that He would like you to serve. And often that, you know, I I get asked by medical students all the time, What residency should I do? I said, What kind of medicine do you love? God designed you for that. Well, I'm not sure if they can use a dermatologist in the mission field, but I love dermatology. You can use just about any specialty on the mission field. I know a guy that spent most of his career in Uganda as a neurosurgeon. You'd think, my goodness, how in the world? He did about half the neurosurgery in the country. So there's opportunities. The more specialized you are, you can't go as many places, but there are opportunities for whatever God has put in your heart for your training. And then most importantly, what I meant to say a minute ago is pray. Say, God, give me direction. Help me to understand your purpose. Let me to move forward, guide my life. And as you do that, God will give you direction on where that country could be. And many people don't even make that decision until they're already joining up with a mission organization. and Even then it changes. If you had asked me when I went to the mission field if I'd be doing what I'm doing today, I'd say, absolutely not. What are you thinking? Now, looking back, I can see so clearly how God was preparing me to influence and have more influence in missions than I ever imagined I would as a missionary on the field. So God may change course. I know uh, Dave Thompson would tell you if you read his book, On Call, it's a wonderful book. He knew he and his wife both knew an Asian language. They were raised there as missionary kids. They were getting ready to go. And at the last minute, the, the uh, killing fields broke out. They couldn't go into that country. And he ended up in West Africa learning a different language, learning French. So sometimes God will change it even dramatically. The bottom line is you follow him and he'll guide your paths. How do I pick a mission agency? Boy, that's a big question, isn't it? Maybe you're not to that point yet, but someday you will be. And I get asked this a lot. And there's some things I encourage people to do. First of all, consider it's theology. Now there's a lot of interdenominational groups but there's a lot of groups that are not interdenominational and they may be calvinist or they may be wesleyan armenian or they may be whatever <clears throat> and so they may you may not be compatible with their theology which you come out of or that may not be an issue for them and it's no problem but uh, it's something you need to look at what's its focus what part of the world does it work in what country are you feeling called to? Do they actually work there? Do you feel called to unreach people? Or are they doing work among the unreached? Or do they just have established facilities that they're staffing? Uh, that will give you some guidance, understanding its focus. What's their strategy? What type of outreaches do they have? Uh, are you going to be the first healthcare person they've ever had as a missionary? You're going to be a pioneer if you do that because there's nothing you'll be joining. Uh, are they involved in church planning or training or medical or radio or printing or maybe all the above, and maybe they do a lot of different things. But you want to understand their strategy and how you'll fit in. Uh, Maybe they have, uh, uh, how evangelistic is it? And uh, I always thought about that when I was looking at mission agencies because my heart was for evangelism. We can help people feel better and feel great on their way to hell if we're not really concerned about evangelism. And so I want to make sure I had an organization that had a strong evangelistic record. Uh, What's their experience? Bottom line is, do they know what they're doing? (laughs) Uh, What's their track record? It's like getting married. I'm I'm, I'm merging my life with your organization and my family. And uh, I want to make sure that uh, you know what you're doing. There's organizations that are old and stodgy, and there's some that are old and continually relevant and cutting edge. Uh there's new organizations that are trying new strategies that haven't been tried in the past and new approaches and that might be attractive to you. Um, but look at their experience and uh and their record of success. Are they being effective in ministry and how would you fit into it? How are they supported? They're basically two types of mission organizations. There are those that are denominational and they actually cover all your expenses. Uh, one of my children is out with the IMB, Southern Baptist, a good organization, and they didn't have to raise support. We went out with a faith-based organization. We raised our support. And we'll talk about raising support here later on as another question because that often scares people, and I, th- I think there's a, advantages and disadvantages to both. But the, the second group is called a faith mission. Do you, by faith, are raising support under their guidelines uh, to support your family and your ministry? Uh, what's its success? Are people coming to Christ, being discipled, leadership being developed, or are they good at indigenization? Are they reining up national leaders? Is the church growing? Now, you're not going to find a perfect mission organization. Let me clue you in. There's going to be, every organization is going to have its strengths and weaknesses. But you want to understand those before you get into it. Maybe you're going to be the solution to some of this, the issues they're dealing with. Uh, what's its management like? I would basically put it into two categories, so this probably should be broader than that. There's kind of a top-down or a bottoms-up approach in most mission agencies. Um, top-down approach means here we, we are very structured, here's how we do things, It's here's what you're supposed to do, here's what we're going to give you to do it with, now you go get it, get it done and let us know about it. And then there's kind of the bottom-up approach, which was the organization as was with, where they gave us a lot of flexibility on the field to set our own goals and objectives and, and to grow. I like that because I, I, I was a leader and I wanted to be able to grab onto a problem and do something about it without saying, mother, may I, every time. Uh, not one better or one bad. It's just how you are and what you'll fit into. And, um, it can make a, a big difference. My, my sister and brother-in-law went out with the mission organization. And uh, they were a faith-based organization. I remember one of the complaints I heard very early from them. They rose to all their, their support, and at the end of the fiscal year, if you had any money left in your account, the mission just swept it all into the general coffer. That really stuck in the craw. I'd had a hard time with a mission organization like that. I think they've changed their policy now. But that was kind of how they, they funded the administration, is they kind of had this sweep where they swept everybody in. So it was kind of top-down. And then, what's the culture? Every mission organization has a different culture. The best way to really understand it is to go spend some time on the field with some of those missionaries. And when you do that, you'll get a real idea of what the culture is. And uh, it varies among mission organizations. And it's not that one's bad and one's good. It's what culture fits with you, and um, and how how are how are they focused in that. And as uh, Medicalmissions.com has over 800 Um, Mission organizations listed there. There's ways you can go in and search and see what they're doing and how they're doing it and where their focuses are and where they're working and all those type of things. So the days where you had to go try to figure out 800 organizations on your own, you can filter things down pretty quickly. So if you're not, right below us here is where you can register, get on medicalmissions.com. Uh, put in a profile of what you're interested in, your background, your education, what part of the world, and they will help you narrow all this down to a manageable number of groups. Because if you start with a blank slate, you can be overwhelmed pretty quickly. Question number four, how do I prepare? How do I prepare? And the questions I get in healthcare is, you know, I, of course, deal with a lot of medical students, and they're all concerned that they're not going to be able to treat some weird tropical disease when they get over there. Let me first, and for nurses, I don't care what your what your uh, area of expertise is, let me just say this about it. You know how to learn. You know how to learn. You've been learning. You're learning every day now if you're in training. And what you need to understand is you can learn what you need to know. You, I tell um, medical students going into residency, I'll say, you could go to every residency you can imagine, and you will not be prepared for missionary medicine. Period. I'm not trying to discourage you, I'm just telling the facts of life. I went to an excellent residency, and in the first few days I was there, I was doing things I'd never seen before, never trained to do. Come to my lecture on um, playing God and other ethical issues in missionary medicine, we talk about a lot of that and tell a lot of stories about it. Because you cannot be fully prepared. There's no residency that will actually prepare you, no nursing school, no PT program. But you know how to learn, you're good at what you do, and you learn what you need to know when you get there. Um, You know, let me give some general things, speaking to those of you that are in medical school. uh, The more specialized you are, and I said this kind of already, the more specialized you are with the specialty, the fewer places you will have to go. Okay, you're not going to be going to a Bush hospital to, you know, as a highly specialized doctor. You'll be going to a larger hospital that's multi-specialty, and that's fine, but you just limit the number. The more general you are in family practice or general surgery or things like that, the, more, the wider the train is. So if you have a desire to be a pioneer, go out and do it all, create it all, start a hospital, start from scratch, you're going to probably want a primary care specialty. Nurses. Uh, nurses often need extra uh, training when they get to the mission field depending on where they're going because training in the United States for nurses is significantly different than it is, especially in British-influenced countries. I know when we were in Kenya, our nurses had to do a number of months of orientation when they arrived. Uh, our nurses could run an ICU and, and you know, see 16 monitors at once and pick out the abnormal rhythm. And whereas the nurses in Kenya that were being trained there – where hospital nurses, midwives could diagnose and treat and run a clinic. Nothing like that happens here in one thing. So what often happens with nurses is they go, they learn, they come back and get more training to do something that they see a need for, uh, or they go into midwifery or become a nurse practitioner or whatever before they go to have some of those skills. So uh, it differs, depends on where you're going. The sooner you figure out where you're going, the more opportunity you have to get the training. Maybe your passion is the community and you want to get a master's in public health and get out in the community and do prevention. So let, let your interest guide you, uh, but realizing that most nurses that I know over time came back and got more training uh, in another area that they hadn't planned to go into because they found a need they didn't expect. Uh, PAs um, are a great way to go as well. Some countries it can be difficult to get into, uh, they can have difficulty with licensing uh, because they don't really understand what PAs are. Or some countries, like Kenya, where I was, they have clinical officers, which are similar to our PAs. And sometimes they'll say, we don't need more of those. We've got enough. So it depends on the country. I'm not saying go that direction, not go that direction. If that's what God calls you to do, I'm just giving you a heads up. Nurse practitioners usually have an easier time uh, and because that's recognized and nurses commonly do it. Some of the greatest needs in healthcare care are dentist and pharmacy. Um, we just started the first Christian dental residency program in the country. It's in Memphis in the inner city. Our goal is to train dentists to go start national dental residency programs overseas. There are very few dentists in ministry. I spent 11 years in Kenya and was the medical superintendent and the CEO of the hospital. I never had a trained pharmacist in the hospital. I had a 300-bed hospital. I ordered all the medicine and supervised all the pharmacy. So pharmacies needed. So there, there's opportunities. Administration, I would have given a couple doctors to get a good administrator in so I didn't have to run the program. Whatever skills God's given you, if God's called you in missions, I think you'll find a need there. Prepare, get good education, but realize when you get there, you're going to learn a lot more. I know I did and almost everyone that goes, that's the case. What, what about raising support? That scares a lot of people. And uh, I think there's some, some great benefits to raising support. Uh, I learned very quickly that uh, all the money in the world didn't make any difference in the middle of the night when I was up to my elbows in somebody's abdomen as a family practice doctor doing surgery and seeing something I'd never seen before. I was so thankful that I had a band of people that were more than financial supporters. They were praying for me consistently and faithfully and fervently. And uh, I think one of the benefits of raising support is you develop individual relationships with people who become your prayer warriors as well as your supporters. And um, secondly, it gives you an opportunity to minister. When you raise support, you go out and meet people and speak to them individually and in groups. And that has a tremendous impact on individual lives. I never saw fundraising as a burden. I saw fundraising as an opportunity to challenge people into supporting or going as missionaries. And uh, I think uh, a faith-based uh, approach does that. I know our church that we went to during residency, they invited me back to speak after graduation as we became missionaries. It was the first time they'd had a missionary in the pulpit in 20 years. Actually, our church was kind of our mission field during residency, but... Um, because that was not their only issue. But that, those opportunities um, come because you are willing to do that. Let me give you some other encouragement if God leads you this direction. I've been at this now 35 years since I graduated from residency and, and full-time in ministry. I have yet to meet any kind of healthcare care missionary who couldn't raise their support. Because people can see very clearly what you're doing and the impact it's having. It's a little harder for the guy doing the accounting on the field. But you've got the pictures of the baby dying or whatever you're dealing with that uh, opens people's hearts and their pocketbooks. In fact, many medical missionaries raise, faith-based missionaries raise more money than they need and help support other missionaries on the field who have difficulty raising funds. I know we did. Uh, what, are, uh, what are some of the barriers? It takes time takes time to raise support. It can be uh, nine months, a year, or even longer. Uh, there's your personal fear. I don't know how to do public speaking. I lack knowledge. How do you ask people for money? Uh, I won't get into all that. We have, CMDA now is training new medical missionaries. So if you end up with appointment from an agency, it's becoming more and more common. You'll be spending some time with us. We trained 100, over 100 new missionaries last year. And one of the sessions is how to raise money and how to do that successfully. And, um... You know, I always approached it as I'm giving you an opportunity. In fact, here's how I would do it in whatever I was saying. I would kind of incorporate into it and say, do you believe in good investing? I do. I mean, you know, start, plan a little bit for retirement, 403B. I don't know what you have, but I, you probably believe in good investing. I do. In fact, uh, well, I've got some kind of investments you may not have. I've got some investments in Spain. Man, are they hot. We're getting some great dividends. I've got some in Nicaragua. I've got some in uh, in Tanzania. And they're kind of looking at me and thinking, what are you investing in in Tanzania? I said, oh, the, the dividends are out of this world. I've got missionaries that we support. And I've named two or three of the missionaries that we've been supporting for years. And, and explain how that we are going to not only help support them, but the Bible tells us that we reap the benefits of what they're doing in heaven and then say, maybe you'd like to do something like that. Maybe you would like to have a missionary that was yours, somebody who was there ministering that you were praying for and supporting and became your missionary, and we would love to be your missionary. And if you'd like to just grab this card, let me pass it right down the aisle, and you could sign up and we'd be happy to talk to you afterwards. This is a faith promise. If God doesn't provide, don't you worry about it. God will take care of our needs. How long does that take? After you're giving a missionary challenge. You can, there's many different ways to do this, but raising support will be the least of your issues. And that support team that you create will be so important in your life. We have been off the mission field since 1991 when I came back to Samaritan's Purse. Many of the people that supported us as missionaries are still supporting us. I still write to them. I was getting a set of Thanksgiving cards together that I'm going to sign and send to individual people who have been supporting us for 35 years. We have a deep friendship and relationship, and I'm still their missionary, and so is our family. What about your children? That's a big issue. What about your children? Because this was the biggest battle Jody and I had. When we went to Kenya, uh, the kids on our compound went to boarding school in second grade. It was six hours away. We could not imagine that. We had two little ones, Jason and Jessica. Jason was three, and Jessica was about one and a half, three and a half, one and a half when we went overseas. I remember we used to stay, stay up at night talking about the kids, and, you know, maybe we would homeschool. Homeschool was just kind of starting and, and uh, back in the early 80s, and uh, maybe we'd come home when they got to high school, and we were just so worried about what this was going to be for the kids. Now, finally, God just kind of spoke to me said, David, do you think I can take care of everything but your children? See, I had the same problem Abraham had. You know what Abraham's problem was? He loved Isaac too much. And Isaac became more important to him than God. And God said, I want you to take and sacrifice him on the altar. It was a test. And God was testing us. didn't mean I loved my children any less or I took care of them any less. But I put them on the altar and said, you've called them as much as you've called me, and you've called us together, and you're going to take care of that. You know what the biggest issue was when God called us back home? We couldn't send our kids to boarding school any longer. Now, we had homeschooled, we had one-room schoolhouse, we did all sorts of things, told them they could go to boarding school, and they went in fifth and sixth grade. It had such a positive impact on their lives, I knew I'd never find a school as good as the one they had in Africa, and we never did. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen to you, but let's talk about some of the advantages and disadvantages. I had more time together, and most missionary healthcare personnel do, than you'll ever have in the U.S. Um, I had breakfast, lunch, and supper with my kids every day. How many doctors or nurses you know do that that are working? Um, if I got tied up at the hospital the evening, Jody would send up Jason, and he'd stick his head in the operating room and say, "Dad, Mom wants to know when you're coming. Hey, can I can I watch?" Now put on your hat and mask, stand over by the wall, I'm almost done. Uh, you know, we didn't run off to soccer practice or to ballet dancing or anything in the evening because there were no place to go, so you went home, you were with the kids. And uh, you build such enormous relationship with your children that you don't do here in the States. Lack of negative influence. I didn't worry about what they're watching on TV, who's going to give them drugs at the mall, what they're going to see at the movie theater, It sure made being a dad a lot easier. All the other missionaries were their uncles and aunts. That's what they called them. They loved them. They cared for them. Any of my nephews and nieces, missionary nephews and nieces, could call me today, 35 years later, and I'd drop what I'm doing to help them if they needed help. That's how close the relationships are. Common challenges. You know, they say the best way to bond a family together in the United States is to take them on a camping trip. Why? Because you face a common challenge. Let me clue you in. Missionary life is one long camping trip. (laughs) And you're always facing challenges. We got in the vehicle, I put in two spare tires, and I put in the tow rope and the shovel and the repair kit for the tires and the mechanic kit. There wasn't a gas station, a petrol station for the first three hours of our trip. Something happened, we had to take care of it. We're down a dirt road in the middle of Maasai. So you're facing common challenges, and it binds you together. Uh, Enhance maturity. Your kids grow up a lot faster, and they're much more mature on average than kids in the U.S. We noticed this especially when we came back. We had a 13-year-old, 11-year-old, and 7-year-old. We used to leave our kids overnight, and the oldest one was 13. You think, are you nuts? They had been in boarding school. They were mature, responsible uh, that happens because they've seen and been challenged by so many things overseas. They tend to be highly adaptable. Their whole life's been adaptable, and uh, and it, it's a highly positive thing. Uh, they've had rich experiences. They're very comfortable with other cultures, with travel, with uh, death, dying, living by faith, meeting people. Conversant with adults, they, it, it's, it's an incredible blessing. Now, I'm speaking generalities. There, I'm sure there are exceptions to the rule. But of all the missionary kids I've known, you see these common things. And uh, I still remember we were in the, uh, Jason was three, and we were, uh, we were in the airport in uh, Spain. And he went wandering off, started talking to some adults over here, just jabbering away. And a few minutes he came back to me and he said, Dad, you need to go talk to those people. I said, why is that? He said, well... They don't speak English. They don't speak Kipsigis. They must be Swahili. It's some Spanish tourist. <laughs> and he was just jabbering away. He couldn't get anything out of them. So trying language after language until he finally decided I had to do, do it. So it's uh, fun. And then the breadth of perspective. They have a larger worldview, uh, much beyond uh, most kids. And they tend to be high achievers. There's actually studies on this. The highest achievers in groups are missionary kids followed by embassy. Folk kids, when uh, experts have looked at this. So what are the challenges? There are a number of them. Frequent transitions, they're transitioning all the time. They're highly adaptable. That's one of the characteristics, but it's a lot of hellos and goodbyes and going to school and coming back to the U.S. and frequent transitions. Some of them have difficulty with a sense of identity. Who am I? Where, where am I from? Where's home? Ask missionary kids, where's home? And they kind of look at you crazy because, uh, well, I'm American, but you know, my home's kind of hap- you know. So some of those things, um, sometimes I have difficulty with long-term commitments because they've had so many short-term commitments. Uh, some rootlessness is common to that, or restlessness. They're always, you know, half passport will travel. I could walk up to any one of my kids and say, you want to go into uh, Afghanistan with me tomorrow? Sure, Dad, let's go. That sounds great. Where's my passport? Oh, my passport's in my back pocket where I normally keep it. You know, that's kind of where they are. Uh, Missionary kids are that way; they're they're willing to move on. Uh, there are separations; hardest things being away from family, uh, in particular. Uh, the positives far outweigh the negative, and there are great resources out there now on raising third culture kids. They're not really all that American, and they're not really all the home uh, country where they've been raised. And a lot of good stuff out there on uh, tricks and tips and to to deal with the challenges and maximize the advantages. What about safety? First of all, just remember this God's in control. You could have died on the way here. You know what the most dangerous thing to do overseas is? Everybody is always worried about snake bites, and I'm going to get some dread disease and die. You know the most common reason people die overseas? Traffic accidents. Same as it is here. Um, and they got some crazy drivers over there because in many countries they bribe someone to get their license. But uh, you've got to remember, God's in control, and there's no safe place other than that. Bad things do happen to good people, and um, uh, we, as a missionary in 1986, my parents came over to visit us, I was in charge of the hospital at the age of 34, and my mentor and the founder of the hospital had gotten colon cancer, and very unexpected, and here all of a sudden I had a huge responsibility, and a lot of things I was doing, and... He went on vacation, had a wonderful time, and, and um, great memories down at the beach in Kenya. And uh, w- about four or five days later, I got a call from my brother-in-law that my dad was sick. And I thought, oh my goodness, he was an evangelist. What did they die of? Too much fried chicken. Thought he had a heart attack, and he'd already had a small one. And um, nope, he has malaria. I thought, good. I thought it was something serious. I mean, you know, he take care of a lot of malaria. And the bottom line of that was uh, he had resistant falciparum. Diagnosis had been missed, and he died two weeks later from malaria. There are sacrifices. I'm not going to pull punches. It was tough. It was tough not being able to jump on a plane and go home. And we we're from here in Kentucky to south Lexington, and I thought, does anybody in Kentucky know as much about malaria as I do? Those things come up, and those things happen. So God doesn't promise you'll be secure that he promised you'll be safe in his arm. And remember, the greatest risks bring the greatest rewards for God's kingdom. The greatest risks bring the greatest rewards for God's kingdom. God's purpose in coming to earth and dying for our sins was not to make us comfortable. It wasn't to make us secure. It was to hold us in his arms and walk beside us as we minister in his name. And God is our refuge. How can I avoid burnout? It's a big issue. Because all of you in healthcare have kind of practiced the maximum. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Just study a little bit harder. You've been in the library studying where everybody else went to the ball game. You're going to get the medical school or dental school or nursing school or through those experiences because you work harder and you're more disciplined. And it's not who's smartest, it's who works the hardest. At least that's the way I experience it, and I assume it's the same for you. So... You put that type of person in a situation with unlimited need and limited you, and it's a recipe for burnout. It's the devil's favorite tool in missions. You have to remember this: it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. Often we'd have short-term people come out. I remember a couple came out, and they just, you know, they were working 14, 16 hours a day, and then they started sleeping on the wards. It was a husband-wife medical team, both physicians, and I remember talking to them and say, "Listen, you can't keep this pace up." Oh, people will die if we're not here. I say, I understand that, but you can only do so much if you're going to... They lasted a week and they turned around and went back to the U.S. because they had out that quick. So you have to do self-care and um, not selfishness, but self-care and realize it is a marathon. You do what is reasonable to do. That means you'll be working hard, but you have to draw the line somewhere. You have to have somebody who's an accountability agent. I remember the day in probably 1988, my wife turned to me and said, David, you're not much fun to live with anymore. Because I was a crispy critter. I was working every minute of every day except to go to work on Sunday. I was running the hospital. I was taking every third night call. I was building a hydroelectric project. I was starting a nursing school. I was going to save the world. And you'll find out, you think you don't have any limits. You get on the mission field, you find you do. And one of the keys in changing that was some disciplines in my life and accountability. Somebody, and I still have that to this day, somebody who turns to me and says, slow down, don't accept that opportunity to do such and such, you've got your plate too full already. It can be a friend, it can be a family member, it can be a colleague. Learning how to delegate and teach and train others to do the job and not trying to do it all yourself. Delegation and training are so key, and training other in leaderships and skills, and that's where missions really is today. We just had a big meeting today about medical schools and residencies and where everything's going in medical missions and how that's the future where this is happening in mission hospitals. And then you keep at it. I remember probably seven or eight years ago I wrote an article for our magazine, Today's Christian Doctor, and I started the editorial by saying, I can't believe it's happening to me again. Because if you're not careful, you'll start getting on the edge and uh, you need somebody who helps pull you back. It's an issue. It's something you have to deal with, that God can help you, and uh, you have to find your level. The thing you have to learn on a mission compound is everybody's level for burnout is not in the same place. So you tolerate others who may have a lower burnout level than you do, not thinking everybody has to work the same because everybody is not the same. And you work together in open communication and you deal with this. It is an issue. It can be avoided. It just takes planning and preparation to do it. Can I have spiritual ministry? That's why you went. That's the purpose of your going. First of all, you must prepare. You know, you can give me the Krebs cycle or some other esoteric thing you'll never use and spent days learning or weeks. And you can't tell somebody how to share the gospel, which is the most important you think you can learn the Krebs cycle or some other esoteric biochemistry, um, you can learn how to do evangelism. There's good resources out there. We, we, uh, CMDA has a thing um, called Grace Prescriptions, and it's a whole course, a video course, on how you share your faith with patients and doing it ethically and with a short amount of time you have and that type of thing. You must prioritize it. If you don't, it won't happen. When I got to Tinwick, I, um, I got a lot of work to do, and it was my job. Dr. Sturry was in surgery. Dr. Morris, there was three of us, was in pediatrics, a full-time job there. Half the kids belonged in the ICU. So I'd see patients and deliveries and read x-rays. And at the end of the day, my job was, as soon as I'd get enough stuff off my plate, to go up to outpatients and see under that sign, doctor to see, all the patients that the national outpatient staff had seen and didn't know how to handle. And I, my goodness, there'd be 25, 30 people there. It's five o'clock in the afternoon. It's going to get dark at 6:30. I can't go home. They can't go home until I see them. And so I just got efficient, almost brutally efficient. I mean, I want I want the lab on the chart. I want the chart there. Bang, 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 bang. I, I got the reputation. Nobody can get those outpatients out like Dave Stevens can. And uh, I remember one day I walked in, and there's a man sitting there. And I'll tell you what I thought. I looked at him and thought, oh, good, this is going to be quick. It wasn't very compassionate because he had a big retropharyngeal carcinoma coming out of the side of his face, ulcerated. There's nothing we could do for him medically. I thought, give him a little pain medicine, on to the next patient. Let's get these people cleared out of here. I mean, they need to get home. Well, really, I wanted to get home. And God just kind of grabbed me by the nape of the neck and just shook me. This was about six months into my mission career after we got out of language school. He said, why did I bring you halfway around the world? Just to take care of people's physical needs? I sat down and speaking to him in the local language, uh, after examining him, I said, this this is going to finish you. His name was Araptoet, I still remember it. He said, raptoid, I'm so sorry to tell you, this is going to finish you. I used the euphemism we used in the local language. He looked at me with great dignity, white hair, elderly man. He says, uh, I, I know Bwana, I know. He said, the only reason I came is my son insisted. He said, we had to walk two days to get here. I thought, he walked two days to get here, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm good. I only have to spend a minute or two with him. I said, uh, Araptoid, let me ask you this. What's going to happen to you when you die? shrugged his shoulders. You know know our ways, Dr. Honey. My oldest son will bury me. That's his job, to bury the father on our shamba, on our plot. I said, that's not what I mean. What's going to happen to your soul, your inner being? He said, I don't know. I don't know. I said, have you ever heard the story of the gospel? He said, no. Lived in a very remote area. And problem every well, I explained the plan of salvation to him. And in the end, I looked at him and I, I said, I said, would you like to accept Christ right now? And he looked me in the eye and he smiled and he said, of course. And in the midst of that busy outpatient area, I got down on my knees by the examining bed and led him to Christ. Called the chapel and got him, found a church that was somewhere near, got him some resources, got him a said goodbye to him, and I never saw him again. Gave him some pain medicine. But someday I'm going to. I don't remember any other patient I saw that day, but I remember him. And I'm going to look him up when I get to heaven. The thing you will value the most is the spiritual ministry you have. The patients will blur. You can't do it all. You need to train others. You need to help them, have them understand Set up a chaplaincy system, make sure there's services on the wards, and a chapel, and maternity, and OB, and isolation, and the outpatient area. You need to set up a follow-up system, a discipleship system. You need to work with the church. That's one of your responsibilities if you're in medical work, to make sure that everybody, clinic, or your community health program, or your hospital doesn't have a contact without having the opportunity to hear the gospel. Remember that you're complimentary. You need to facilitate it. You need to participate in it. You need that is much or more than the patients do. Speak in chapel. Share with the patient. We had our chaplains. chaplains make rounds on the ward every day and saw every patient just like we did as physicians. But I would write notes and the consult, and here's what I found out, and follow up on this part of the spiritual history and deal with this issue. Uh, and then some mission organizations even ordain their healthcare personnel, and that might be an option for you. I never did that. What will be our biggest challenge? Your biggest challenge is, and we're going to close with this keeping growing spiritually. Often that can be wasteland on the on the uh, mission field. I went to the local national church, and we had a wonderful national pastor, but his training level was so low that uh, we learned that we had to listen. I'm sorry, folks, I don't know what's doing this. Um, we had to learn that we had to get tapes, or now it would be MP3 files, things from home that we understand and grow spiritually. We had our own Bible study group with some of our senior staff, and other things that helped us grow. Uh, adaptability, as you talked about that, it's not only true for your kids, but it's for you. Uh, we moved. We finally built a house uh, a number of years ago. We moved in. Jody and I counted we'd moved 22 times to that point, from the time we got married uh, till then. A lot of moves for deputation, moves on the mission field, all that type of thing. Other missionaries are a challenge. Uh, you don't get to pick your friends. Did you know that when you're a missionary? The mission picks them for you. And um, and you're living in this pressure cooker and you're so interdependent. You worship together. You work together. You vacation together. And sometimes people get on your nerves. And uh, learning how to deal with other people and resolve conflict is so important. And so uh, some of the things we train in new medical missionary training, I won't we'll go into it here. Separation from family, it's gotten better than it used to be. My daughter and son-in-law are in North Africa in a very unreached country. And every once in a while, we can get through to them on FaceTime, either visual or audio, and see the grandkids. I mean, when we went, it was two weeks for a letter one way and two weeks back. Things have improved in many countries, uh, but separation is still the hardest thing. And then medicine is only part of the equation, and uh, I learned that very quickly went out well-trained as a doctor, learned a lot more there, but the things that make you effective as a medical missionary are not your medical training. It's your ability to deal with all the other things you haven't learned how to deal with, how to manage people, how to start programs, how to raise funds, how to solve problems, how to do governance in the facility, administrate, all those type of things. And you'll find some resources. I wrote a book called Beyond Medicine, What Else You Need to Know to Be a Medical Missionary because it's so impactful. Your success as a medical missionary depends more on those things than it does on medical, because you're going to be a good doctor, a good nurse, a good physical therapist, a good pharmacist. That's a given, but it's those things that you haven't learned how to do that make it so difficult. We've got about five minutes for questions, and I'll be available afterwards. What questions would someone have? I'm sorry, we covered a lot very quickly, and We can call this the crack, snapple, snapple, pop session. So, questions, comments? Well, I've either answered all your questions or stupefied you. Yes? Pardon? Mm Mm-hmm. How do you prepare with your medical training? So, oh, a PA, physician assistant, physician assistant. Sorry, I didn't make that clear. Yeah, it's physician assistant, which is a two or three year training program. And we have a lot of people doing that here in the U.S. It's not common in other places in the world. Other questions? Yes. Yeah, question is, is there agencies that, where the spouse is medical and the other one is in ministry? Absolutely. And uh, I remember we had an OBGYN come out, and her husband worked with our chaplaincy program to help start our training school, taught in it, went out and did stuff in the community. Uh, there's always some good things for the spouse to do, whatever their interests are. Jody went out. She was a school teacher, secondary school. She ended up running one-room schoolhouse, running the guest house. She was an art minor. She designed logos for the hospital, teaching materials. You'll find plenty of stuff to do because there's so few people to do it, whatever their skill sets are. One more. Yes? What kind of interaction did you have? What kind of support did you have from local government agencies or others? Yeah. It varies country by country, and I've dealt with a lot of it in, in different countries. Um, and, yeah, sorry. What support do we have from local government agencies? I don't think there's a generality. Uh, I think more back in our day, we were so far out in the bush, it was kind of like, okay, I'm glad you guys are out there and weren't very involved. It's changed a lot now. The roads are better. Government's involved. Government's got more facilities around the mission hospital than it used to. uh, So it differs. And the involvement now is much more than it was when I was there because I'm still in touch with those missionaries. It depends on the country as well, but I believe medical missions is the key to completing the Great Commission. Because you go in as a business person or whatever trying to get in these difficult access countries, sooner or later they find you out and they throw you out. But most times they will not throw the healthcare people out because they need them so badly. And, uh, and they'll know what you're doing, but they'll put up with it. Uh, and we've seen this again and again. That's not absolute true. Some missionaries have been thrown out, but it's much more prevalent as you get to stay. Thank you all for coming. We're finished. Fill out your uh, evaluations. Give me a grade, and I'll get over it. Thank you.